You know, as I was thinking about 1 Samuel and thinking about the passage that we're looking at today, which is the first two chapters, we're looking at Hannah's story, I really wanted to break 1 and 2 Samuel down into these narrative pictures, like these vignettes that we see in the story. And in Hannah's story, um, we see a family that's really struggling. And I was thinking about this idea of how do people determine whether God exists? If he does exist, what is he like? You know, as a child, you learn from your parents. Your parents tell you God exists, he loves you, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you learn those basic truths, maybe if you grew up in a family of faith or even a family that didn't have a real strong faith, but they had some kind of cultural understanding of Christianity. And so we grow up in some level with that. But as you age, if we're honest with ourselves and one another, as you age, those basic things that your parents told us or your Sunday school teacher told you or whatever it might be, they began to get chipped away at with the pickaxe of life experience, right? Life experience throws all that stuff into question. And you start really wrestling with, well, first of all, if there is a God, is he good? You wonder that, wonder that kind of stuff. And you think, well, if, he is, if there is a God, is he powerful? Because if he's powerful, then how come he doesn't intervene more? And if he's good, then why is he allowing the things to happen that happen? And so your life experience kind of comes out and it's in a juxtaposition in a contrast to maybe some of those core things that you were told when you were a little kid. And so you start really wrestling with this idea of what is God actually like? And I think this is why if you ask the average person on the street and you ask random people, what is God like? They're gonna begin with this. Well, I think that God is like Fill in the blank. And if you listen carefully to their words, their words are mostly of people giving you an answer from like a buffet-style approach to life, right? And so it's like, this happened, and I have this story, and I heard this myth, and I saw this rumor, and I have this meme as like the background on my iPhone, and someone told me about this scripture, and I have this philosophy because I had this contemporary moral issues teacher in university, and that really shaped the way I thought about things. And what we do is we kind of have a a buffet approach where we, we gather up all of these things, and we kind of carry them around in our little worldview basket. And we never stop to wonder if these things are congruent. In other words, if they actually connect to one another or if they're diametrically opposed to one another. And this, this own personal perspective that we've created based upon experience, based upon things that we've heard. And you know, maybe you're here today and this is the kind of stuff that you're wrestling through. Maybe you're here today and you're wondering, well, does God care about me? I mean, is he there? What's he like? I still remember when I started asking those questions. I was probably a freshman in high school. I started wondering those things. And maybe for some of us, you're looking at your life experience and you're hesitant to even try to extrapolate that to what it might teach about God. Because you're like, based upon my life experience, if there is a God, that kind of scares me. Maybe some of you are in that place. And the reality is that as we look at the story of Hannah, as we look at the story of Hannah, we look at her family, 
we see a family who very much would be wrestling with the same stuff. We see a woman who would very much be wrestling with the same kinds of things. We see a family who on some level is always trying to do the right thing, trying to love well, trying to honor God, but life is not giving them what they think that they deserve, what they think they should have received. And this runs the risk of shaping their worldview shaping the way that they view God, that's called theology, shaping everything about their lives. You see, but we're blessed because as readers of this story, we get to see another angle. We get to see this story from an unseen, omniscient, third-person party, and we get to see that there is a force at play here that transcends time, that transcends current events, that transcends everything that's going on because we get to see from the word, which is more reliable in experience, we get to see the truth. The word, it gets to inform us about what is true. And the truth is that this isn't some impersonal force at work here in the story of Hannah, but the truth is that we see a transcendent God who is distant and powerful, yet also intimate. We see that there's this king who is behind the scenes of all of the circumstances that are unfolding in the story in front of our eyes. We see that there's this king behind the scenes, and he's not a distant and aloof king, but he's a king that cares deeply. He cares deeply for Hannah, and he cares deeply for us. And so let's jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Alkanah, son of Jerham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. A certain man Certain man, this is exactly how a similar story begins in the book before Judges, in the, in the narrative flow. The book of Judges comes before 1 Samuel, um, Judges Ruth. And we have this picture here in Judges 13 of another certain man whose wife was barren. And so you remember I told you guys last week that we're coming out of this time period of Judges and the Lord is transitioning the nation of Israel out of this kind of tribal leadership, this warlord leadership into this monarchy, but not yet. And we meet this family. The, the dad's name, the husband's name is Alkana. He's from the hills, Alkana of the hills, of the hill people like Lothar, right? And here we are five miles north of Jerusalem, we see this family, and we realize right from the beginning that there's some tension. Because you have wife number one, Hannah, who has no children. By the way, her name means favored one. And then we have wife number two, Panina, who has many children. Now, let's keep going. Now, this man, Alkana, used to go up year by year, year after year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. 
part of the sacrificial system, just as a pause here, is that they would do a sacrifice and then you were able to eat part of the sacrifice with your family as a celebration. Okay, that's what the portion is referring to. So he gave a double portion because he loved Hannah, though the Lord had closed her womb and her rival, in other words, Peninnah, the rival wife is how the law refers to that, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here's the picture we have. We have this faithful man, this faithful family, but a faithful man, a faithful family doesn't always mean a happy family. What we see here is that this is a religious family. This is a family who's trying to do the right things. They're trying to honor the Lord. They're going to the place of, of worship year after year. They're going through all of the sacrifices and the festivals that they're supposed to do. We see that with Elkanah. He's not only a man who is spiritual, a man who is, is religious and committed to the Lord, but we see he's a man who loves his wife right? He's trying to love his wife. He sees her plight. He sees the shame that she carries, and his, he's broken for her on some level. That's why he gives her the double portion. That's why in his very imperfect way, he tries to comfort her at the end of this um, section of scripture. But what we see here in two, it says it two times, is that the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord closed her womb. In other words, it wasn't Elkanah's fault. It wasn't Hannah's fault. It wasn't Peninnah's fault. It wasn't because someone cursed her with the evil eye or because she, you know, didn't eat enough mandrakes. No, the Lord had closed her womb. Interestingly, it's also the first time in the Old Testament that we see this title, the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts meaning the Lord or the God who commands angelic or spiritual armies. So we see here is this who closed her womb? The Lord of hosts. The one who's in charge of the entire unseen realm. The one who orchestrates all of the unseen realities of life. He is the one who closed her womb. In other words, this issue of being barren for Hannah is in the Lord's hands. And Hannah is completely powerless to do anything about it. Now, why would the Lord do that? Why wouldn't God give this woman what she wants? As year after year, she goes and tries to honor him. Year after year, Alcana goes and tries to honor the Lord. And year after year, as Peninnah seems to have more and more children, Peninnah, who seems like in this story is the only one who isn't seeking the Lord, she gets to thrive. And she gets to have a healthy family and more and more kids as she goes to celebrate year after year. You can imagine the tension that this causes in the home. Maybe you can put yourself in Hannah's shoes. If you're here, you're, you know, you're a wife, you're a mom. You can put yourself in Hannah's shoes and think about 
how she just is craving what she's craving. It's not a bad craving. If you're a husband, you can put yourself in Alcana's shoes and you can realize that you, there's nothing you can do. It's not Alcana's issue. He has no problem. He's not sterile, right? Penina has more and more kids. The powerlessness. I want you to feel the powerlessness that this family is holding. See, but the love that Alcana had for his barren wife just burned as hatred within Penina. Why would she be the backup, the second wife, while the favored one, in both name and action, has no children, and it goes on for years. Every time they go for celebration, you can imagine Penina rubbing it in Hannah's face. What do you have to celebrate this year as she carries a new little bundle of joy? Let's continue. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's a, this idea that he's going to be committed to the Lord, okay? And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Eli's the priest who's, you know, he's working over there. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and she ate and her face was no longer sad. Everybody's celebrating here except for Hannah. Hannah's not celebrating. Hannah is in absolute mourning. And although Hannah's struggle has been year after year, the author has gone out of the way to point that out, year after year after year after year, this year is different. Now, whether because the Lord chooses to act this year or because maybe Hannah tries a different approach, by pouring herself out before the Lord. We don't really know that. But we do know this, that from a place of deep distress, from a place of deep sadness, from a place of utter brokenness and an awareness of her inability to solve this problem, she cries out to God and prays. And if we were going to kind of join a, or kind of have a little action principle here that we should learn from this is we have to applaud Hannah for her faith. We have to applaud Hannah for her prayers because she finally, at least in our story, goes to the only one who actually can open her womb. 
that for however many years they've been trying to solve this problem of their own accord, but now she goes to the one who can open her womb. She even prays to him as the Lord of hosts. This is the king who's behind the scenes, the king of that unseen world, and she makes a vow to him, having exhausted her own abilities. Isn't it so human that that's what we do? We go to the Lord after we've exhausted every other human possibility. That's when we go, and that's what she does. But she makes a vow, and she says, this is your son. If you would only let me carry him, I'll give him back to you. Just take away my shame. You see, because you have to remember that shame is a big deal in this culture. If you're a woman who couldn't have children, there's a lot of shame in the ancient world. Well, you have to remember that when these celebrations, people come, they eat, they drink, they're actually commanded to do that. But for some people, some who are in that, that state of revelry, it crosses the line and it goes from celebration to dissipation. And so Eli has seen plenty of revelers who have taken it one step too far. And he looks at her and he assumes she's drunk, but she's not drunk. She's moved. And her response to him kind of puts him in his place. We're going to talk about Eli and his sons next week, but just as a little preview of coming attractions, we realize this is what happens if you just cling to religion without heart, you become a condescending jerk, right? And so here's Eli, just assumes she's drunk, no grace, no compassion in his heart for Hannah until she rebukes him. But what's interesting about this is Hannah's response. She says, let your servant find favor. Her name means favor. It means grace. Hannah is the name, and grace is the common noun. So when she says, let your servant find favor, she's essentially saying, let Hannah find Han. Let me find the favor that my namesake actually describes me as having. And we should remember that the Lord loves, the Lord loves to rid people of their shame. He loves to do it. You know, we tend to carry our, our shame I think there's a sense in which we almost love it. It's like a little blanket that we get to wrap ourselves in. The Lord loves to take it away. Uh, and when you think about that, the shame that we have from sin, that was the, one of the first emotions that Adam and Eve felt in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord loved us to take it away. He covered it with, he covered it with those animal skins instead of the fig leaves. The Lord takes away shame with sacrifice, he took away the shame of the Israelites in slavery by redeeming them out of slavery, by ransoming them. He does it by covering Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of covering, when their sin is covered so that their shame wouldn't be seen. He does it on the cross by having Jesus be hung on the cross, completely ashamed in his naked, tattered state. And he does it here for Hannah. He does it here for Hannah by providing her the favored one with the thing that will remove her shame. And again, as an action here, you know, we realize that she prays, she believes, and she leaves it there. Look what happens. It says that Hannah went her way, she ate, and she was no longer sad. That metaphorically speaking, we would say in New Covenant, New Testament words that she leaves it at the cross, right? That idea that Hannah comes, she goes, she eats in faith, believing that the favor God promises is on the horizon. 
It says they rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah and his wife and the Lord remembered her and in due time, how long? I don't know, in due time, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the name Samuel sounds like asked for in Hebrew. And so they rose to worship again this next day, but you can imagine that the worship is quite different for Hannah than it was the day before. The day before, everybody is celebrating while she weeps, but now Hannah's different. She's more alive. She's unburdened because the Lord has invited her to bring her burdens to him, and she has not just put them there and then picked them back up, but she's put them there and she's left them, right? She's left them there as a sort of sacrifice, She brought her burden to the Lord and left it by faith in his hands. The same way Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come to Jesus, we give him those burdens, but then we have to leave them there. We don't pick them back up only to come back the next day. And it says in due time. It doesn't say the next day. It doesn't say the next week. It says in due time. In other words, he's still the king behind the scenes. This wasn't some kind of pagan agreement where Hannah did X and then God has to do Y on her time. No, he's still in charge. He's still the Lord of hosts. And so in God's time, in the king's time, and in the king's way, she conceives and has a son. And she names him Shamuel, which sounds like asked for. Well, let's continue. The male Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, about three years in that culture, I will bring him so that that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there, meaning Samuel. So Samuel, the one who was asked for, he comes, but he came at a vow. Now, I want you to think about that. Hannah made a vow to the Lord asking for him, and the Lord responds. She names him Samuel as a reminder of that reality. If the Lord hadn't, had given her a son 10 years prior, do you think she would have made a vow? Probably not. It was because of year after year after year after year after year, then she makes a vow, and the vow is, I realize I'm going to receive this son, but I'm going to give him back to the Lord. And so the very fact that she gives him back to the Lord is in part due to the reality that God delayed this child because he's the king behind the scenes. He's taking care of all these details with purpose. 
Samuel came at a vow, and so when the time arrives, she gives Samuel back to the Lord. Hannah, Grace, the one who received what she didn't deserve, vows to give back to God what he does deserve, which is her son. Because at the end of the day, we are stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. Now, I want to try to explain this to the best of my ability. Hopefully, it won't just confuse you. But Hannah named the boy Samuel because in Hebrew, Samuel sounds a little bit like asked for. But that word asked for, she now, she now uses four times in this passage, even though the meaning changes depending on the tense of the verb. So we can't see this in our English translation, but I'm going to read it and I'm going to kind of hopefully underline a little bit here. It says, the Lord has granted me my petition that I made, therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Those are the four words, petition, made, lent, and lent. They're all the same word in Hebrew, just different tenses give it a different meaning. But what's interesting is that while Samuel sounds a lot like asked for, the word that we translate as lent is an identical translation of a word that is going to become extremely pivotal throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, and that's the name Saul. And the idea here is this, that Hannah asked for Samuel and received him only to give him back to the Lord. But in the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites will break faith with their God and they will ask for a human king and he will give them what they asked for, the man named Saul, which is the same word in Hebrew. And so we see this play here of what God is trying to show. And what's he trying to show? That he is the king after all. He's the king behind the scenes, the one that they're going to reject in just a few chapters for a lesser king, a king who can't manipulate time and space, a king who has no power to actually answer their prayers or solve any of their problems. And that's the king that they're going to want instead of him. So what are we to make of this story? What does the Lord want us to see about his character? What did the author intend for us? Well, we have to remember that 1 Samuel is a story that explains the beginning of the monarchy. This is the transition from this warlords, so to say, to a monarchy. And in some ways, everything in this book is pointing towards that end goal. And so why does the author include these details instead of all the other details that happened over decades? Why does he leave out those stories and include these? And I think what we're going to see over time is that all of the things that he's chosen further his goal. We will see that the people get what they ask for in Saul, but God will get what he wants in David, a man after his own heart. That God will get what he asks for, a king, a king of kings, a descendant of David in Jesus in the New Testament. But Hannah helps us out here because in chapter 2, she prays this prayer, and that prayer essentially tells us what we're supposed to learn about God from this story. And essentially, it comes down to this reality that he, the Lord of hosts, is the king behind the scenes. And so what we're going to do, we're going to quickly read chapter 2, which is her prayer, and I want to point out to you here that Hannah shows us what we're supposed to learn about God from this story. 1 Samuel 2, and Hannah prayed and she said, my heart exalts in the Lord. 
My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Here's point number one. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, Penina, is what we feel like she's saying. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The first thing we realize about God in this story is that he is holy. He is set apart. He is the uncreated one. He's the only one who can manipulate time and space and people, and that he can take all of that in the midst of our choice. He can take that and accommodate his purpose. That there is no other being who is a rock to the ashamed, who is a sanctuary to the humble, or a place for the weak to hide. That while the world prizes manipulation and survival of the fittest and strength, God is not like anyone in the world. The proper response to this age and this world is not to blend in with the crowd, but to fear the one who is unlike any other and live in response to a knowledge of him because he alone sees the intention of the heart. And to truly know this God, you need his word and his spirit, because he is like any other. So you can't look to any other and say, that's what God is like, because no one's like him. He continues, or she continues, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind or put on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, and she who has many children is forlorn. Point number two, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Psalm 115 verse three summarizes this point so beautifully when it says, Our God is in heaven, and he does as he pleases. He brings the strong low. He turns the paradise into a desert. He flips everything upside down, exalting the meek, bringing low the proud. And if you are familiar with Mary's Magnificat, this reminds us of Mary and Jesus. God exalts the humble and he brings low the proud. He did this for Hannah and he continues to do it throughout history, even for us, his church in the gospel. Where does God get the right to do whatever he pleases? That irks us, doesn't it? What do you mean God does whatever he pleases? Like that seems a little selfish. That seems a little obnoxious. Why does God have the right to do whatever he pleases? Well, he's the king behind the scenes. He's the one who set everything in order. His timing is perfect. And what we see as delays in answers to prayer is actually God setting up the dominoes. Think about that. Think about the reality that if Hannah did not have a hard time getting pregnant, then she never would have made a vow. She never would have given Samuel to the Lord. If she hadn't given Samuel to the Lord, he would not be the final prophet, priest, judge, this precursor who as a shadow looks forward to Christ, but he's gonna be the last ruler before the king. He's gonna be the one to essentially inaugurate and and, and anoint King David And if 
that pregnancy hadn't been delayed, that never would have happened. And if he was born too early, then guess what? Saul wouldn't have been the right age, and David wouldn't have been the right age. And all of these things are set up in God's sovereign hands like dominoes. Because God alone is the king behind the scenes who has the power to do what he wants, and he does it perfectly because he brings all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. He isn't a weak king. He isn't a cold king. He isn't a distant king. He is a wonderful king who is intimately involved. But when he says no or not yet, we need to remember that in all of these things, he is for us and not against us. To finish this out, and he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. In the midst of the pain and the suffering, God has a plan. He will right the wrongs. He will cut off the wicked. He will bind the wounded, but ultimately he will do it through this prophecy that Hannah utters. He will do it through the king, which in 1 Samuel is going to point to David. But as, as new covenant people looking back hindsight, we know that it's pointing ultimately to David's descendant, Jesus. See, 1 Samuel, Samuel is about the nation's transition to a monarchy, but we see here that they already have a king the king behind the scenes, the unseen king, and he's a greater king. He's a king unlike any human ruler. The men and women might think that they have the wisdom to rule, that they have the power to rule, that they have the control to rule, but it's all an illusion because God alone has that kind of ability. He closes Hannah's womb. Why? Because it pleased him to do so in that time. God is seated in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. It pleased him to do that in that time. Why did it please him? Because the timing wasn't right. Timing wasn't right for Samuel to be born. God had a plan. There was going to be an important prophet. There was going to be a future King Saul. There was going to be another King David. And in his divine sovereignty, he knew what needed to happen all along. And so the king behind the scenes delays as he sets up the dominoes. And you could trace those dominoes from today all the way back. He knew all along how this would unfold. He orchestrated it. He planned it. And he collaborated in it. And then he invites us into his story. It's not our story. We're not the main character. It's his story. And he gives us a thread to weave. And although we have the choice to do as we desire, he ultimately knows how to turn everything around to accomplish his purposes. Only the God, only the king behind the scenes can take Joseph being born into slave or sold into slavery and use it to save a nation. Only the king behind the scenes can take a barren womb and he can bring forth a deliverer. Only the king behind the scenes can take the cross, the most wicked thing the world has ever seen, and then turn it around for the greatest good. See, Israel will reject the king behind the scenes in Samuel, 1 Samuel as many still do today, 
But Psalm 2 reminds us of this truth, and Linda read it earlier. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast their cords away from us. But he who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. And he says, as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. See, God is the king, the unseen king, the king behind the scenes. His timing is perfect. His answers to prayer are perfect. He does whatever he pleases And every decision he makes is right and good, which means we can trust him. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Give me your burdens. Let me carry them. You can't carry it anyway. So come to me. Let's pray. Father God, we consciously want to surrender, Lord, realizing that you are not like us, that we have no real ability to accomplish the things that we think we want to do, that we think we can do. And so, Lord, we want to humble ourselves and allow you to be the one who lifts up our head. Let us embrace meekness and humility, and surrender, and joy, knowing that the king behind the scenes, the Lord who commands armies, is on our side. And in all of these things, even the unanswered prayers, the aches and pains that won't go away, the wayward children, in all of these things, you promise that you are for us and not against us. Let us choose to trust you in your sovereign plans. In your name we pray, amen.